Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Creepy Classics. With me today, as always, is Lawrence. What's up, guys? And today we are going to be talking about, well, we're going to be listening to and telling our favorite uh, urban legends. I think there's seven of them on this uh, play I'm about to do here. But uh, before we jump into it, I I actually just talked to you about this. What What is your favorite urban legend? And do you and do you believe it or not? Well, ask that. I mean, urban legend. Uh, what are we talking about? Like paranormal stuff or like ghosts and I mean, goblins or- everything that falls under the urban legend category. The you know, the abominable snowman, Bigfoot, um, wh- whatever. You know the. Like here, I'll, I'll t- just to give you an idea. I'll tell you what mine is first. My favorite urban legend is that story you always heard when you were growing up. Everybody has probably heard the story before, but it was the one about the girl who's like left home alone and like her parents told her to make sure to lock all the windows and such like that. And she can't get the basement window to lock. So she instead she like, uh, you know, tries to deadbolt it or something like that. And then she like, you know, decides to go to bed later that evening. And she keeps waking up to like sounds of like water running or like a dripping sound coming from the bathroom. So like every time she does this, she reaches down to feel her dog beside her. It's like a comfort thing. And the dog licks her hand and she feels, you know, she feels comforted that she's got, got a protector there. So she, she goes back to sleep. Well, you know, she wakes up a couple times and does this, puts her hand down there. And then like the final time she wakes up at something like, you know, almost seven in the morning. Or depending on, it's it's different with all the variations of the story. But she wakes up at like seven in the morning or something, goes, you know, to finally investigate what the sound is. And, you know, looks uh, looks out the window, sees her parents pulling in, and instantly uh, shows a sign of relief. And then goes to the bathroom to uh, see what the problem was with the water, you know, to examine. And she sees her dog hung up on like the shower rod, skinned and bleeding out, and the blood dripping is the sound she heard. That was the dripping all night long. And then, then who she, was the one? Well, hold on. I'm getting to it. <laughs> and she goes back to her room, and there's a note written in blood that says humans can lick, too. It's creepy, but I never heard that before growing up, either. You've never heard that story? No. Oh, man, that's like, that's, a, that's like a classic urban legend story. It sounds a lot like the, the Stranger Calls myth, where, where it's like the babysitter's watching the kids and... She sends them to bed. She keeps getting a, a phone call. Now, the kids are upstairs. She's downstairs. She gets a, a phone call for some guy, unknown number, and he just keeps telling her stuff like about the house. And he's like, you know, I noticed you're there. You're babysitting. And, you know, he hangs up, and then she keeps calling back, or he keeps calling back. And eventually he's like, yeah, um, you need to come up here and check on the kids. And she looks up the stairs, and she's like, how did he know that? And it turns out he was in there with the kids. That sounds like that story. Yeah, I mean that's an urban legend, so that qualifies as one of those stories. So, 
That's one I always heard growing up, but I don't. Yeah, know I heard. Was. I heard that one too. That was that was a classic that was always told by people too. But like, I I've always loved stories like that. So I'm looking right. forward to hearing what uh we're gonna have here. This and this one's gonna be your favorite voice guy, the one I've always played in the car sometimes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this one is from the Let's Read podcast or uh, YouTube channel. So uh, I'm gonna key it up here and get it going, and we'll uh. We'll let them play and comment after each story. I think there's seven stories. So, before that, though, I do want to share the link in the chat. So, if anyone wants to join in, go ahead and get that. Here's a link for anyone who wants to join in and tell their favorite urban legend story. I have a little urban legend as my background tonight. The the Oswong. You're familiar with that, huh? Yeah, the Asawang is a Filipino urban legend. It uh, involves something that always attacks children or something like that, or babies, I believe. And well, it, it's like, always it sucks the they're, blood. They're always after pregnant women, and they want to suck out the uh, fetuses. Yes, he looks pretty uh, balls deep, though. I, I think he's a he's pretty cool looking. I love this artwork. Yeah, that's the reason I chose it. I, I saw this online. I was like, oh, yeah, I love that. I was like, it's going to be my background for this episode. All right, then, uh, well, without further ado, let's, uh, let's share this. Oh, not that one. I probably could have had it ready to go here. My folder popped up. But... Get your shit together, Greg. Man, man shut up, man. <laughs> All right, here we go. I like his intro already. Me too. It sounds like Mr. Baldwin's intro, though. Ironically, one of the most horrifying true urban legends yeah, I like is perhaps this guy. one of the least known, at least in the U.S. anyway. Because up in Toronto, Canada, almost everyone has heard the story of the Leaping Lawyer. Ooh. According to the story, one well-to-do lawyer was overly keen on showing off all the features of his extravagant office space. The Leaping Set Lawyer. Set into a huge glass skyscraper, the firm who made the huge plate glass windows of the office boasts that their windows were unbreakable and that it would take a shot from an artillery gun to successfully shatter them. Apparently, this well-to-do lawyer was a fan of proving them right, and had a rather terrifying office party trick that he often used to wow his guests. Right when the party was in full swing, he would take a running jump at the plate glass windows after announcing, Goodbye, cruel world. Those in attendance would scream in horror as the lawyer leapt towards the window, only to be met with his hysterical laughter when he harmlessly bounced off the toughened, polished glass. Over and over, the lawyer repeated his death-defying stunt, until one day, the unthinkable happened, and the unbreakable broke. Oh, the lawyer man. reeled up, ran at the glass, thrilled by the accompanying screams of the uninitiated. But as his large, speeding body came in contact with the glass, it shattered, and instead of turning around to laugh at those who had fallen for the prank, the lawyer was only met with the sound of his own screams as he plummeted 20 stories down to his death. Oh, it's an urban legend that has everything. The impossible is possible. The arrogant are punished. 
and it's about as theatrical as urban legends get. Yet perhaps the real horror only comes when we learn that the entire story is completely and utterly true. After completing an engineering degree before attending law school, Gary Hoy took a job practicing corporate and securities law in the eastern Canadian city of Toronto. He worked for a firm known as Holden Day Wilson, a law firm located on the 24th floor of the Toronto Dominion Centre. Then on July 9th, 1993, Hoy happened to notice someone giving a tour of the office to a group of articling students from a nearby university. Like he had done many times before, he attempted to demonstrate the strength of the structure's window glass by slamming himself into a window. So, in order to give the students a good fright, Hoy took his usual run-up and slammed into the plate glass. <laughs> this is where the urban legend differs from the true story, as it turns out the glass was indeed unbreakable and remained unshattered even on the day of Hoy's death. Instead, some rusty old screws tired of Hoy's continual abuses, simply dislodged and allowed the window pane to slip out of place. <laughs> right there, in front of the completely unsuspecting students, Gary Hoy screamed as he slipped through the gap in the floor and the window, plummeting 24 stories to his death. The building's structural engineer Bob Greer was contacted by the Toronto Star for comment. When he learned of Hoy's folly, he was quoted as saying, I don't know of a single building code in the entire world that would allow a 160-pound man to run up against a window like that. He must have been out of his freaking mind. <laughs> in another right. interview, the glass company who made the panes was quick to state that the windows didn't actually break. We just want to make that clear. Yeah, it popped of out of its did. frame. That's what caused Mr. Hoy to fall. Shoddy workmanship. Not our product. Holden Day Wilson never recovered from Hoy's death, and it was definitely one of the factors that contributed to the firm's eventual closure less than three years later. At the time, it was the largest law firm closure in Canadian history, but national newspapers seemed to forget that Hoy's death even occurred. The firm's closure was blamed on mismanagement and financial discrepancies, and the fact that Gary's ghost had haunted all those that had witnessed his death was totally ignored. Maybe that's because the story became so frequently mentioned in fictional media, referenced so heavily on TV and in film, that people just assured it was the fabrication of some overly imaginative writer. And we can understand why. The tale is truly a horrifying one, something we'd rather tell ourselves didn't happen, rather than facing the bone-chilling truth, that a man really did end up taking his own life, all because of a dumb prank. Alright, so... Let's pause after that story. What was this guy hope... I mean, like, of all Ew. the pranks he... Of all the pranks he could pull, he decides, hey, I'm gonna, you know, make it look like I'm gonna run through this glass window. I mean, that's a lot of trust he had on that construction. I mean, and that's that what window. I'm saying, like, you know he had to try it before, and, like, every time he did it, it was cool. And then finally, at the last, you know, because he had to get it to loosen the uh, the screws on the window pane, so he had done it multiple times before, thinking he was safe. Yeah. And Death said, "Nah, bitch, we. <laughs> I remember, like, your time is up, basically. And he shouldn't have done that. It was stupid, but I mean, he had to learn some way. 
just sucks you, to have you that way. <clears throat> have you heard that story before? Is that a new one for you? <laughs> yeah, it's very new. I've when what year did that take place? Because I don't uh, remember. Uh, I, he never says the year or the the place uh, unless it's relevant. The place that a lot of these take place, but yeah, uh, I don't know, man. But uh, that's that's crazy. I I wouldn't do any stupid prank like that. That's for certain. Greg, I'd find a better way. I'm like not. Dude, I, I am like not trying do. to run into a glass window. <laughs> I feel like you do it and you try to live stream it, like pranks from Greg, and it show you goofing off doing this shit like that. First of all, we wouldn't be lawyers. We're not smart enough, I don't think. I mean, you wanted to be. Yeah, I did. That's a personal story for another time. But, um, <laughs> we're not lawyers now. so. All right, well, I like the first story. Good story. Let's continue. Go ahead. Send me all the Many of us will be familiar with the Bloody Mary urban legend. The idea that if you look into a mirror and say her name a certain number of times, a malevolent phantom I love known the as Bloody, Bloody Mary, Mary will materialize to murder you. Some might say that the movie series The Candyman borrowed the concept, having the protagonist stare into a mirror while repeating the titular character's name as a means Candy to summon man. him. Candyman. It's certainly a terrifying trope. Don't you say it a third the idea time of staring into a mirror, <laughs> only for someone or something to suddenly appear behind you. It's enough to make even the bravest of us shiver. But no one's ever just appeared out of someone's mirror to murder them, right? Those of you who wish to remain in blissful ignorance, I implore you, stop listening right now. Ooh. But for the rest of you, I don't mind being a little right. paranoid for the next couple of days. Let me introduce you to the story of Ruthie Mae McCoy. At around 8.45... What did you have to say, Lawrence? I had to say this. Uh, Tony Todd was the best candy man, hands down. Agreed. On April 22nd of 1987, Ruthie Mae McCoy made a 911 call from her 11th floor Abbott apartment on West 13th Street, Chicago. After the police dispatcher asked Ruthie what manner of assistance she required, he found her response to be incredibly perplexing. In effect, Ruthie told them that someone was trying to get into her home via the bathroom cabinet. They want to break in, he asked. From where? They want to come through my bathroom. Ruthie replied, I'm on the other side. They're trying to reach in through my bathroom cabinet. The dispatcher had already established that Ruthie was on the 11th floor of a 13th Street high-rise. There was no way anyone was climbing through her bathroom window, and absolutely no way of them using her bathroom cabinet as some kind of doorway. The dispatcher was most certainly concerned for Ruthie's safety, but it seemed to them that the biggest threat to her well-being was herself. She sounded frightened. That much was certain. But if she truly believed that people were trying to break into her apartment through her bathroom cabinet, she must have been having some kind of mental breakdown. The dispatcher told Ruthie that the cops were on their way, but he logged the call as a disturbance with a neighbor as opposed to an assault in progress. It wasn't a high-priority call, but... The cops would get there eventually to check up on her. When the cops finally arrived at Ruthie's apartment, they knocked on the door but received no reply. After their knocks went unanswered, the police attempted to enter the apartment using a key given to them by an attendant in the housing office. 
but left when the key failed to unlock the door. The next evening, Chicago PD received a call from one of Ruthie's neighbors who was worried about her whereabouts, considering she had seen police at her door the night before and still had not seen Ruthie. Chicago police and Chicago Housing Authority security guards arrived back at McCoy's apartment shortly afterward. This dude and has after the, best the knocks voice. and calls for McCoy went unanswered, officers suggested breaking the door down, but unbelievably were prevented from doing so by the CHA security guards who told them they'd sue the city for damages if they got fired from their jobs. The following evening, pressures from the cops forced the Chicago Housing Authority to act and they sent over a representative with a carpenter, who drilled the lock on the door. It was then that they made a horrifying discovery, the dead, decaying body of Ruthie Mae McCoy. Homicide detectives discovered that she had been shot in her left shoulder, left thigh, the right side of her abdomen, and right upper arm. Damn. It also became Sorry. obvious that whoever had shot Ruthie Mae was known to her, and was able to gain access to her apartment without breaking and entering. Yet they discovered that Ruthie had locked her door from the inside and the key was still on its hook near the threshold. So how had they gotten in and out of the apartment? Detectives reviewed the 911 call Ruthie made on the night of her death. Through that damn mirror. And she mentioned her killers trying to get in through the bathroom cabinet. A deep chill fell over the two men. It was impossible. Like something out of a horror movie. But there had to be a rational explanation for what Ruthie was saying as she was obviously not imagining anyone in her mirror. Detectives returned to the scene of the crime intent on fully analyzing this bathroom cabinet that Ruth had mentioned. To the naked eye, it appeared to be a regular bathroom cabinet. Mirror door, sterile white insides dotted with cosmetics and medicines. There were no secret doors inside of it, and there were certainly no supernatural portals to hellish otherworldly realms. In a show of mild frustration, one of the detectives either shook or struck the cabinet, only for each of them to notice something curious about it. It visibly shifted. We can imagine the moment, one detective silently looking at the other with surprise, before returning to shift the cabinet again. Before long, they discovered they could do more than just shift the thing, they could remove it entirely revealing Boy. a gaping hole in the wall. As it turned out, the ABLA projects, which Ruthie called home, had a rather unusual architectural quirk built into it, and in that certain apartments connected to one another via a narrow tunnel that ran behind the bathroom cabinets of opposite apartments. Why? This design right. was intended to provide easy access to plumbing fixtures uh, if maintenance was ever needed. There we go. And in some cases... Apartments above and below each other were also connected by similar means. Granted, this made tradesmen's lives much easier, but also provided easier access for burglars and also nefarious types, as the bathroom medicine cabinets were easily removable from each end. A person could simply remove the cabinet from the wall of the apartment they were in, crawl through the narrow passage known as a pipe chase, and push in the cabinet of the unit they were trying to access. Break-ins via this method have been going on in the ABLA projects for quite a while by the time of Ruthie's murder, to the extent where residents would put furniture in front of the bathroom doors or tie them with rope before going to bed, 
It was obviously a huge problem, but one that was completely overlooked in the construction of the housing projects. Until the Chicago Housing Authority could find the money to fix it, residents were told to simply make do. Ruthie's apartment, number 1109, happened to be connected to number 1108, and this is obviously where her killers emerged from. Number 1108 was indeed being rented at the time, and it's believed that the tenant on record was actually a drug dealer who allowed his customers to use the apartment as a drug den. These shady drug-using types must have either entered or heard about the flaw in the architecture and decided to use it to their advantage. Two ALBA residents, Ted Turner, then aged 18, and 21-year-old named John Honduras, were charged with murder, home invasion, armed robbery, armed violence, and residential burglary. A number of witnesses claimed they saw the two men carrying McCoy's 19-inch color TV and rocking chair around the projects in the hours following Ruthie's murder. After years of arrests and continual investigation, the charges against the two men were dropped due to lack of investigation, and the Ruthie's killers were never officially charged or imprisoned. Even without the supernatural element, the idea of someone being able to violently break into your apartment via what amounts to a secret passage is absolutely terrifying. Very few of us have ever seen the blueprints to the apartment buildings or houses that we live in, and even few are actually interested in doing so. And so how do you know for certain that there isn't some kind of secret entrance to your apartment? And if there is, how do you know there isn't someone sneaking along it right this instant, ready to jump out on some poor unsuspecting scary story fan to give them their own personal horror story? Pause it immediately. Okay, so that's fucking nuts. That is. What's nuts about that is why the fuck didn't Ruthie just leave? <laughs> Like, what the... You mean, I mean, where was she going to go, man? Uh, Not in the apartment where there's two murders in there. You can go down the hallway to a friend's apartment or anywhere else. <laughs> she well, I mean, you got to realize she didn't call and say that, you know, someone was trying to come through her bathroom, like her bathroom window, until the night that she uh got ousted, so... They could have been coming in the whole time. They may have had this thing planned out for weeks. But didn't she get on the phone and call the, the, the cops and say, hey, there's someone trying to break in? Yeah, as they were coming in, I guess. Right then, put the phone down and leave. They're still trying to get in. You still have full you know, range to get out. Like There's nothing stopping you from leaving. I don't know, man. Some old people are stubborn like that. They'll just stick around and and wait. For, you know, They have faith in the cops. They'll just wait for them to show up. Oh, when, when the police get here, you're going to get it. Yeah, you know, but uh, you know, they mentioned the Bloody Mary urban legend, and I, and one of the things that's always creeped me out, dude, is that that thought like the mirrors. I don't like mirrors in general, like in, in a room with me, especially in a room I'm sleeping in, because like there's always that paranoia that, like, you know, what if what if my image does something different than I do? Yeah, that's a classic one. Like, yeah, it's like, what, if, what if a demon is standing behind me? Like, I go to wash my face and then pick my head back up, look in the mirror, and there's like a demon behind me. Or even a ghost, anything, man. Anything behind you that's not supposed to be there. 
I don't uh, like that idea at all because it's. I gotta say, I'm already loving the Let's Read stories a lot. So let's let's continue. Right. Perhaps you've heard of the urban legend, sometimes known as the dead body under the bed. The uh -oh. legend tells of a vacationing couple that checks into a seedy roadside motel <laughs> only to discover a foul smell in their room. Come night, they find the smell to be so odorous that they're unable to sleep and decide to call a member of staff to complain. Yeah, that too, Corey. The staff member then discovers or Jonathan, that whichever of you is controlling that. It's going on, Corey. He looks under the frame to find the couple had been sleeping on top of the rotting body of a young girl that had been stuffed into the box. It's definitely one of the lesser known urban legends, but it's one made all the more terrifying by the fact that it's actually a true story. Not only that, so all of these are true. there have been multiple occurrences of yes, people sleeping in rooms where dead bodies have been concealed. And two of those unfortunate souls were James and Rhonda Sargent. The couple had been on the road for hours before they checked into room 222 of the Budget Lodge Inn on Brooks Road in Memphis, Tennessee. That evening, the couple said they complained to the motel staff that the room was stanky and foul. They burned some incense they picked up from a nearby hippie hole, but it seemed like nothing could cover the revolting odor. Though it seemed that someone had apparently tried before, because the sergeants noticed there were fabric softener sheets stuffed in the ceiling tiles and nooks, and the smell was strongest whenever anyone sat on the bed. It was perhaps the worst night's sleep of their entire lives, and in the morning, the couple left the motel, determined to never darken his doors again. Oh, that's awesome. Sometime later, the smell had attracted some like negative Lawrence. attention. Those guys' voice is good. The motel owners finally no, decided to call the police. More than one guest had commented that Check this out. it smells like a dead body in there, in room 222. That's, and they were wrong. That's a fucking urban legend. Homicide detectives <laughs> instantly recognized the smell as belonging to a corpse. And after turning the room upside down, Let's oh, like the moldering cadaver of 28-year-old mother of four, Sony Milbrook. Throughout the course of the police investigation that followed, it was discovered that Sony had checked into the budget inn sometime in January of 2010. She was staying with her boyfriend and father of four of her children, Lakeith Moody, and the room was in his name. Milbrook had been there for a couple of weeks when one day in late January, she did not pick up her kids from daycare. Her sister, Linda James, reported her missing. Police believe she died the day she vanished, but were told by motel workers that they had bagged up Millbrook's personal belongings and cleaned the room. The workers said nothing appeared amiss and the room was rented out. If Sony had indeed been a victim of foul play, it certainly hadn't been the budget inn, or at least so it seemed. After Sony's body was found, Lakeith Moody was stopped while driving Millbrook's car and was arrested on federal charges of being a felon in possession of a gun. They took until his trial in 2014 for him to be convicted of murdering the mother of his child, and he was automatically given a life sentence in accordance with state law. Back to back. I'm just a, a shock. Yes. I'm like, back to back. okay, I done laid on top of this lady's body, said Rhonda Sargent who stayed in the room after Milbrook disappeared, 
before her body was found. This is somebody's daughter, someone's mom. Why didn't they investigate this fully? I think I would have searched all over, her husband James added. I think I would have known to look up under the bed. Yet he didn't, and neither did the police. It was already clear. Talk about ruining a crime scene, Memphis Police Director Larry Godwin said in March. It had also been rented several times with next to no complaints. It was like, well, we don't have any evidence here. The officers wanted to solve it, and so they went in a different direction. Whether or not there was misfortune, or simply incompetence on the part of investigating police, it's impossible to judge. But what things remain clear, that an alarming number of people have actually slept on beds under which a body had been concealed. So next time you're on the road, and you stop to spend the night at a roadside rest stop, Make sure there's nothing masking any particular nasty smells. And as always, always check under the bed, as apparently, you know really well when you'll be sleeping with an unexpected roommate. <laughs> so a dead body under a bed in a hotel room? But would the body be scary since it's dead? Like, what's it going to do to you? I mean, stink. Obviously, it was. First off, I, I don't know what kind of hotel they were staying at, but like, surely they had to have gone to the clerk and been like, "Look, there's this rancid smell in my right. room, and, and I, we need another room." And you already know how the hotel clerk was. He's like, "Sorry, we're fully booked." So what gets not gonna do for you? Why did the cleaning lady find that? I mean, don't they toss mattresses and all kinds of craziness? Guess not at that kind of hotel. Must, yeah. not been, must not have been a five star. Now the thing that got me is that the police didn't even look under the damn bed. It's something's funky with that story, but we'll go with it. But I mean, think about it. Like who, who looks under a bed in a hotel room? I do. Really? That's where I put a lot of my, yeah. Every time I go in there, that's where I put my shoes. Under the bed? Yeah, I just slide them under the bed so they're not in the way. Why they have Where's a closet? It? I never use the closets for none. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on. You just sat down on the old porcelain throne, and you're settling oh, into yeah, my yourself. favorite spot. A kind of serenity comes throne. over you. It's a time of privacy, of solace and seclusion. The more uncouth among us might even describe the feeling of voiding their bowels as blissful. And as disgustingly satisfying as a good dump might be, sitting on the toilet with our pants around our ankles is without a doubt one of the most vulnerable positions in which a person could possibly find themselves. And for some, that vulnerability might have become frighteningly apparent to us at some point. It seems impossible, sure, but what if, what if, something could swim up the sewage pipes? slowly snaking or scuttling through the filthy toilet water, only to surface right when we're at our most exposed. Perhaps a rat, wiggling its My wife has this tail, surfacing with a squeak and then launching itself teeth first at our backsides. Or a snake, winding its way up the pipes before sinking its fangs into you-know-what. <laughs> Maybe even an alligator, 
floating in the toilet, an just waiting for us to come along and lift yeah, the yeah, lid. Alligators so in the sewers. <laughs> Most of us had a similar kind of irrational thought whilst Definitely don't want that to happen during that situation, Corey. I mean, that's got to be just an urban legend. Well, I hate to break it to you, friends, but it's true. And rats have been crawling up sewer pipes that's and all into I need people's to hear. toilets with horrifying frequency. And just for about as long as sewage systems have existed. Magnolia is the second largest neighborhood of Seattle, occupying a hilly peninsula northwest of the downtown area. It was named by Captain George Davidson of the U.S. Coast Survey in 1856, who reportedly mistook the plentiful mandrona trees for magnolias, and given the early date of its founding, some sections of Magnolia have a very archaic sewer system. Although made of much heavier metals, some might argue that the older sewage pipes are just as strong as the modern polymer variety. The only problem is that they're quite a bit different. And being larger has its drawbacks, as one unfortunate resident discovered to their abject horror. One evening, they obviously approached their toilet intending on relieving themselves before bed. But when they lifted the lid, the sight that greeted them made their blood run cold. Staring back at them, with cold, beady eyes and gnashing yellow teeth, was a huge, soaking wet sewer rat. The scream it must have elicited from the unsuspecting homeowner must have been enough to wake the dead, as the squealing beast leapt from the toilet bowl in an attempt to escape it. The rat seemed to couple its escape with a lunging attack, and was successful in making the homeowner back off enough for it to be able to make a clean break for the bathroom. The homeowner was left stunned and horrified, weeping on the bathroom floor in the aftermath of such a terrible surprise. I now feel utterly unsafe in my own home, the homeowner said, in a letter to the King County Public Health Department. Local media outlets reached out to a man named Don Pace, a rodent control specialist for King County's Public Health Department. It's a life-changing experience if it happens to you, he said admitting that the incidents are much more common than we're led to believe. It does freak you out, because you're not expecting it. In King County alone, there have been over 400 reported incidents of sewer rats simply materializing in people's toilets over the past 10 years or so, with Pace saying that his department deals with between 50 to 80 toilet rat scenarios a year. What? Notorious as spreaders of the infamous Black Death, Rats are one of the most reviled and ubiquitous urban wildlife nuisances, and it certainly doesn't do their reputations any good when they invade the privacy of people's bathrooms. Pace has been helping people vanquish toilet rats for more than 20 years in King County, and the occurrences of toilet rats are now so regular in certain parts of the northwestern United States, the Don has set up a webpage to help people deal with the problem. We try to tell people not to panic. All you have to do is close the lid and flush. The rat will try to swim back down or get tired and drown, Pace said. It might take more than one flesh to exile the furry intruders. Well, Typically, Norway rats are about 6 to 8 inches long, 12 inches if you include their tails. So, they don't go down easy, let me tell you. Sometimes I feel like a superhero because everyone's so happy when they see me, he said. 
<laughs> Usually, he continued, the story goes something like this. A person hears a splashing noise at 1.30 a.m. in the toilet. They look in to see a rat doing laps. Yet, within five minutes, it disappeared. There's water everywhere, and there's no sign of any obvious entry. It seems impossible, but it happens a lot, and there's very little we can do about it other than deal with the incidents as and when they arise. Some of the public complaints to the King County Public Health Department are available to read online. One stated that I have the unfortunate duty to report that I found a rat in my toilet bowl this evening, on July 1st, 2013. It is quite alive and unhappy to be where it is. I'll try using dish soap and flushing. If that doesn't work, I guess I'll look for heavy leather gloves and see if I can remove it that way. Wife heard scrabbling noises in toilet. Another complaint read. Lifted lid and saw rat. She screamed. Flushed three times and rat disappeared. Then squirted dish soap down toilet and flushed twice more. Then poured bleach down kitchen sink followed by boiling water. Wow. Don Pace said he approves of the dish soap method mentioned above. The soap breaks the surface tension in the toilet bowl and makes it difficult for the rat to swim. But the measures don't stop there. If someone reports a toilet rat to the county, Pace will typically drop poison bait into a nearby manhole cover to address any other rats who might be considering invasion. It's probably best to avoid drawing rats in the first place, Don was quoted as saying. Rats are typically chasing food poured down the drain, but detour to porcelain because they can't access the sink. They come up where they find easiest access, the toilet bowl. Every house has a kitchen sink, so every house has an entry point for rats. It happens throughout Seattle, from the far south end all the way up to the north end. Don recommends cleaning your drains regularly, preferably using a cup of baking soda, a cup of vinegar, along with a healthy dose of boiling water. It's particularly important to do this in the summer and fall since this is naturally when the rats will be most active. But that being said, incidents are still rare overall and the more modern your drains are, the less likely occurrences of toilet rats actually are. So rest assured, people. The chances of actually finding a rat sitting in a toilet bowl are relatively low. But I'm sorry to say, it does occur. So maybe it's best we all start leaving our toilet lids down to keep the sewer rats out. But if you do, remember that every single time you lift the lid, you're rolling the dice <laughs> on being ambushed by a huge, angry vermin. So, Lawrence, what would you do if you found a rat in your toilet when you go there to take your late-night piss? Man, let me ask you this. How well, how would the rat not drown coming up the toilet? That's the part I don't understand. Well, he said sometimes they do. He's like when they tire themselves out trying to get out of it. But I'm saying, like, for them to even come up through the toilet, they would have to come up past the water. Like, how did they not drown getting out up to the surface you see what i'm saying well he said sometimes that's the reason he said that uh you know make sure you close your toilet lid is because sometimes they'll like pop in unexpectedly and try to like escape out i don't know somehow i guess if the pipes are big enough man they can work their way through the pipes without drowning you'd have How to the... you'd have to talk to the rat about that one 
<laughs> no, we're going to talk about talk to the urban myth about this, and something doesn't add up. But uh, I had never seen that. Um, but if I did, I don't know. I don't like rats, man. I'll tell you that right now. I'm not a rat person. I'm not afraid of rats. I, I'm going to pull a dust on this one. If there was a rat in my toilet when I lift the lid, I'm just going to kick the shit out of it. I'm going to whack it with something. To be honest with you, I'm more scared of fucking roaches than rats. Like, <laughs> I don't fuck with them, but the rats. So, <laughs> so what if you go to open your toilet lid and it's just completely filled to the brim with roaches? Then I'd be scared. Like, that would be a, a urban myth for me. That's why or, or when you start, or when you open it up, they just start. Because I think that ass like crazy. I mean, I see that flying shit gets me. If rats <laughs> start to fly, then yeah, we're talking something. But until All right. then, All right, let's, <laughs> let's continue. As we all know, sewers are dark, dangerous, and scary places. The fictional home with supervillains, evil clowns, and post-pubescent reptiles trained in nujitsu, there's obviously a lot of nasty, gross, and hazardous stuff down there. Rats, used tampons, toilet paper, sewage, you name it. If you flush it, it's down there. But what about the infamous colonies of alligators that are so prevalent among urban legends? Alligators in the sewers. It's certainly a claim that's been around for decades. And you've probably heard some version of a tale that kicked off the urban legend. Supposedly, a spoiled young boy gets a baby alligator, of all things, for his birthday and flushes it down the toilet when he's bored of playing with it. Years later, as the story goes, the same boy reaches into a sewer grate for a lost baseball, and his arm is ripped off by a former pet, now monstrous and ravenous for blood. Some versions go even further to suggest that after the alligator was disposed of at such a young age, it would live the majority of its life in an environment not exposed to sunlight, and thus it would apparently in time lose its eyesight and the pigment in its hide and that the reptile would grow to be blind and completely albino, pure white in color with red or pink eyes. Another reason why an albino alligator would retreat to an underground sewer is because of its vulnerability to the sun in the wild. As there is no dark pigment in the creature's skin, it has no protection from the sun, which makes it very hard for it to survive in the wild. Some people even spoke of mutant alligators living in the sewers, which have been exposed to many different types of toxic chemical waste which altered them making them deformed and sometimes even larger and with strange coloring. The story is widely known and has appeared in many forms including TV shows and horror films. Indeed, queries about the sewer gator rumors regularly arrive at the offices of the New York City Bureau of Sewers and are routinely denied. One source for the story is the 1959 book titled The World Beneath the City which included an interview with the New Yorker claiming to have been sewer commissioner in the 1930s when a campaign was mounted to clean all the gators out of the sewer system. This seemed like solid evidence that, even if alligators no longer lurk in the city's sewers, they did it at one point and were enough of a menace that the city initiated a program to eradicate them. However, further investigation revealed that the man had never been commissioner and in fact had delighted in spinning outrageous yarns. Trumping all myths, however, is the fact that alligators wouldn't survive long in the sewers. 
In a 1982 interview with the New York Times, Sewer Bureau spokesman John F. T. Flattery said, I could cite you many cogent, logical reasons why the sewer system is not a fit habitat for an alligator, but suffice it to say, in the 28 years I have been in the sewer game, neither I nor any of the thousands of men who have worked to build, maintain, or repair the sewer system have ever seen one, and a 10-foot, 800-pound alligator would be hard to miss. Still, New York City is a big place and known for its strangeness. Some people have exotic pets, and it's possible that there are one or more doomed miserable baby alligators somewhere, but finding or putting an alligator in a New York City sewer does not mean that decades of stories about giant alligators in the sewers are true. Until, that is, you come across one particular account from 2010. I was wondering what we were getting an alligator, to. A crocodile. We were stumped. But it was definitely, well, quite a reptilian reptile, said New Yorker Joyce Hackett. As I threaded my way back to my home in Manhattan through the side streets of Queens, I noticed a crowd of about 30 people gathered around the old Navy Dat Sun. I rolled down my windows and asked the lady cop what was going on. Alligator, she said, what? as if the overriding issue here was that she should have already been on her break. I squatted down, and there it was on the wet asphalt, crouching motionless. Not an 8-inch baby alligator. This is more like 2 feet. But honestly, he seemed less like a menacing predator and more like an abandoned pet cowering under a car. Like many of us, Joyce was more in the familiar with the whole alligator in the sewers trope, but never for a second did she believe it to be true. Yet when faced with overwhelming evidence to the contrary, even when she was forced to relent... Storm drains and gutters all over the neighborhood were flooded from the downpour, Joyce mused. Maybe a wave had washed this creature onto the pavement of civilization, separating from its pack. When asked if she was actually shocked or scared by the gator sighting, Joyce could only answer, kind of, because New York is a city where one expects the unexpected, a city where alien creatures take root and whose gutters, basements, archives, and streams serve up more stories than all its writers can think up. I mean, it's a city that writes itself. Each year, at least half a dozen people ask New York City's Bureau of Sewers about those infamous gators. John T. Flattery, Chief of Design, answers those queries routinely. I could cite you many cogent, logical reasons why the sewer system is not a fit habitat for an alligator. But suffice it to say, in the 28 years I have been in the sewer game, neither I, nor any of the thousands of men who have worked to build, maintain, or repair the sewer system have ever seen one. Flattery, whose sense of humor is of the dried yet deadly variety, added the one clear proof of the absence of alligators. Not a single union official has ever advanced alligator infestation as a reason for a pay increase for sewer workers. Even though it's next to impossible to prove something didn't happen, I would still suggest from the lack of credibility sightings it's safe to assume that there are no alligators down there, he said. Yet despite what Flattery says, from the years 1927 to 1982, there have been 13 separate reports from people having sighted alligators in and around NYC's sewer system.
The two-foot baby alligator was caught in 2010 by the NYPD in the sewers in Queens, and it was most definitely from the sewers. But it's unlikely it was down there for long, as John Flattery is totally correct in his opinion that gators simply couldn't survive down there for any extended period of time due to the frigid winter weather. However, once the cold isn't a problem anymore, alligators actually flourish in certain sewer systems and have been sighted in the drains and sewers of Florida as recently as 2017. Well, that wouldn't surprise me. those waste outlets yeah, backing out sense. into the swamps. During storm surges and the colder winter months, Florida alligators sometimes shelter in convenient drains and hunt for rats to supplement their diet. So despite all the naysayers insisting it's impossible, there is irrefutable evidence that alligators can live in American sewer systems. And although it's clear that they can't live down there for long, the Queen's sewer gator sighting is undeniably true. So maybe be a little careful next time you're around a storm drain during heavy rain, because it's not just Pennywise that'll grab you by the arm before tearing it off. And you just might find yourself being eaten alive by something you never thought possible. Pause that. Thoughts. The story doesn't really bother me because I don't live in New York or Florida. So. <laughs> and did he believe in the urban legend or not? He kept defending it one minute, and then he said, "Like, well, he said at the end that they found they found like a small gator in the New York sewer. So that it turned out that there really was alligators in in the sewers, but just one that probably got down there by freaking chance, and they can't survive anyway. So." It was interesting. That's that's actually the one I've heard uh, as a kid that kind of interested me, that everyone kind of knew about, only because of Hey Arnold, because there was a show that was on Nickelodeon called Hey Arnold, and it was a big episode, but I mean... The alligators cool. in the sewer? So was alligators that in the sewer. They were looking for them or something, but I mean, fuck alligators. I don't... I mean, what are they going to do to me? Um, I mean... We do have them here, so it's not like they're completely not a worry. But um, oh shoot, let me take that back. <laughs> so they don't hear me. I see, I see, I see them all the time crossing that little Brent bridge in Minge, that little overpass there. So really, yeah. What? <laughs> there's like a whole. There's like a. You can see them there, like pretty easy. Minge Avenue. I need to go there then. Yeah, because I used to. I used to fish there until. I saw that shit, and then I never went back fishing there again. I'm like, shit, there's alligators here. I'm not, I'm not going back there again. <laughs> you can train them, dude. They can be pets. I ain't willing to try. All right. All right, moving on. The man born as Frank Ruchon would eventually go by Andre Rand during his adult life. But the name on his driver's license has become somewhat irrelevant as his terrifying exploits will be attached to a deceptively playful nickname. Born in New York City on March 11th of 1944, Rand would spend most of his life around Staten Island, going on to be one of the most infamous criminals that the Northeast has ever known. And although Rand definitively wasn't the most prolific serial killer, it's more the nature of his crimes that made him so universally reviled. You see, Andre Rand's prey of choice was children. Thankfully, 
Andre Rand is currently serving several consecutive 25 years to life sentences. But the convicted kidnapper and suspected child serial killer managed to wreak enough havoc and inflict enough pain in his time that his capture and imprisonment provides very little solace. Yet bizarrely, the man's morbidly fascinating tale began as a real-world campfire story. In days gone by, young people all over the borough of Staten Island would scare the living daylights out of each other with descriptions of the monstrous figure known only as Cropsy. Supposedly a sort of boogeyman ah, figure, with a razor-sharp still hook for a hand, Cropsy would apparently drag innocent children from their homes in the middle of the night before carrying them to an abandoned hospital. There, depending on who was telling the story, you would be tortured, killed, eaten, or any combination of the three. Although creepy campfire and urban legends are a standard, a thrilling part of most everyone's early childhood, for the children of Staten Island, these ominous little tales soon became disquietingly real. The line between fact and fiction began to blur as local children began to vanish in real life, but when their cold, dead bodies were found, it made it clear that this was no mere campfire tale. Could it be that Cropsy was real? During the 1960s, Andre Rand was employed as a custodian at the Willbrook State School. Funded by state government, the Willowbrook was a charitable center that provided aid for children with disabilities. On the surface, all of the Willowbrook's practices were good and proper, but upon closer inspection, state officials began to unravel a web of questionable conditions and unethical medical practices. On the advice of the inspectors, the Willowbrook was immediately closed and Andre Rand was forced to find alternative employment. Rand had a clean slate. He could have pursued just about any manner of unskilled labor, but instead, he chose to pursue an even more horrifying career. Between the date of the Willowbrook's closing in the early 1970s, several young girls went missing in the area surrounding the abandoned hospital. The first was a five-year-old Alice Piera. On July 10, 1972, the happy-go-lucky toddler seemed to simply vanish into thin air while playing in the street just outside her house, a street located just a few miles southeast of the old Wilbrook Hospital. For a while, the whereabouts of the small child remained a complete mystery. Yet there was something else the local townsfolk were unaware of, that Andre Rand once went by Frank Ruchon, and Frank Ruchon had once served ten months in prison for the abduction of several small children. The fact he only did ten months stems from the fact that his defense attorney managed to essentially haggle a judge down to a conviction of false imprisonment, a crime with a considerably lower penalty than kidnap or abduction. But the conviction was enough to smear Frank's name for good, and so he came up with a rather simple and cunning solution. He changed it, and after moving out to Staten Island, became Andre Rand, Yet as much as Rand could hide his identity from the townsfolk, he couldn't hide his identity from police officers who were well aware of his legal change of name. So when little Alice Pereira went missing on that warm July evening, the police considered Rand to be the prime suspect. Despite their convictions, evidence was flimsy, 
and not nearly enough to gain a solid conviction in the so court. So there's your, uh, your truth so, to this one, Lawrence. As the cops chose to hold the Yeah, horses, I mentioned that in the previous. The bodies began to pile up. On July 15th, 1981, seven-year-old Holly Ann Hughes went missing. Her parents filed a missing persons report. While several witnesses claimed to have seen the girl with Rand shortly before her disappearance, once again, no actual evidence led to no actual arrest. Two years later, Rand once again became the prime suspect when 11-year-old Tyhees Jackson disappeared. Then in 1984, 21-year-old Hank Gaffario vanished. These unnerving incidents left the nearby townsfolk racked with terror. A terror that was exacerbated by the fact that not a single person was apprehended, with all at a loss for a potential motive. It was a whopping three years before local law enforcement finally caught a break in their investigation, when 12-year-old girl Jennifer Swagger was reported missing on July 9th of 1987. The search for her, or her body, lasted 35 days, and ended in the traumatic unearthing of her body in a wooded area on Staten Island. According to the New York Times, Swagger was found dead in a shallow grave on the former property of the Willowbrook State School. By the time Jenny Swagger's body was found, police decided they had to act, and Andre Rand was arrested and charged as a suspect in the murder. Once again, prosecutors fell afoul of court procedure and found they were unable to convict Rand on the murder charge, with there only being enough evidence to irrefutably convict him of kidnapping. This was 1988. Prosecutors had Rand exactly where they wanted him, in a federal penitentiary, where he'd stew while they worked on convicting him of the other child murders. Although there wasn't enough evidence at the time, Rand was found guilty of Holly Ann Hughes' kidnapping in 2004, over two decades after she originally went missing. And since there is no statute of limitations for New York for first-degree kidnapping, Prosecutors ensured that Rand wouldn't escape justice for his historic depravities. He was given an additional 25 years to life sentence on top of the one he was already serving. All in all, the Staten Island Boogeyman sits behind bars to this day for the Staten kidnappings Island of Holly Boogeyman. Ann Hughes and Jennifer Swagger, and won't be eligible for parole until 2037, provided he lives that long. He'll be 93 years old on the day he walks free. Andre Jeez. Rand's disturbing life and legacy were dissected in the 2019 documentary movie, Propsy. I gotta watch that. The film premiered at the yeah, Tribeca really Film good. Festival that year and won the Grand Jury Prize for its enthralling narrative and slick production quality. And on watching it, it's easy to see why. The essential premise of the movie was to explore whether or the Staten Island urban legend of Cropsy was actually tied into Rand's murderous career whether one had fed into the other until fact and fiction had become indistinguishable. Yet as the movie came to show, for some of the people who experienced those years on Staten Island, as well as those involved in searching for the missing kids, the term boogeyman didn't even broach Rand's despicable psychopathy. Donna Cotunio, president of the charity Friends of the Jennifer for Missing Children, calls Rand the Hannibal Lecter of Staten Island. Donna and her fellow volunteers have the unenviable task of searching all over Willowbrook's 385 acres twice a year in search of any undiscovered remains. He terrified a whole community, and he still haunts us, Donna was quoted as saying. For some kids, 
It's like if Corpsey was real. What else aren't they telling us, you know? And I don't know. Sometimes I feel a little of that, too. At the end, Andre Rand was arrested, imprisoned, and may never see the light of day again. But nevertheless, his impact on the Staten Island community is immeasurable, and Cropsey has left behind massive psychological trauma that may well last for generations. Some of those children are still missing. The remains are still oh, out there, sucks. somewhere. And as the years go by, and their bones are pulled one by one from the cold earth entombing them, the memories of Rand's reign of terror will come back flooding over and over again. And maybe that's what makes the Cropsey story so well and truly terrifying. The core lesson in the story, the frightful foundation of its message, is that the boogeyman is real and wears the faces of men. Go ahead and pause it. So, this story immediately made me think of that story you told me earlier tonight about finding that like dead hand in the yes. woods. Yeah, it does sound a lot like that. And for those who don't know, I, I actually did meet my friend Anthony. Welcome, Corey. Welcome, Corey. Me and my friend Anthony did find a uh, severed hand in the forest once as kids and uh, started this big thing where cops were involved. Uh, we were probably, I was in third grade at the time, but it was a wild story. Um, I'll never forget it. But I got to say, this, uh, he doesn't mention that in the documentary, they don't think Rand did it because there was a big thing where they had searched the woods before. And keep in mind, Rand was apprehended and in custody. And they didn't find any bodies. They did it again, and that's when they found the little girl's body or remains. So they think that he was set up, but we don't. We'll never know. I've, I've never heard anything about that story or don't know anything watch about it. Watch the documentary. So. You can watch uh, it on YouTube for free. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm going to. That's, I'm, I'm going to already put it on my list. Yeah. So what's going on, Corey? Not much. Figured I'd hop on with you guys. Well, I think we're actually on either the last story or the last two, so uh, let's let's jump into the next one here. Cool. Some said he was in a house fire. The flames had mellowed his skin like an old candle. Others swore he was struck by lightning as a child, and that the bolt had forked directly into the poor boy's face. There were rumors that he looked the way he did because of some horrifying nuclear accident at the nearby Duquesne power plant. Men swore he was real. Others said that it was all a lie, but back in the day, almost everyone in the greater Pittsburgh area had heard some variation of the Charlie No-Face urban legend. Oh, I like this Some one. called him the Green Man. Others, yeah, I've heard of this one. the monster of Beaver County. But the details were essentially the same. Some older Pennsylvanians even Corey, how you like my, Charlie my no clear drink here. Younger, it's clear saying it was by far the single Pretty most cool. terrifying moment of their <laughs> lives. They describe it like shaking hands with the Jersey Devil or sharing a makeup mirror with a pouting Bloody Mary. You thought it was impossible, but there it is, clear as day, real as you and me. Because Charlie No-Face really was real. And the story is just about as terrifying and tragic as a person can imagine. On August 16th of 1919, an eight-year-old boy named Ray Robinson was taking a walk with his sister and a few other friends out near Newcastle, Pennsylvania. 
At some point, the children looked up to see a rather fetching bird's nest perched atop a nearby tree. Only this tree happened to be dangerously close to an abandoned railway bridge. It's thought the children were engaged in an activity known as egging, in which children would cruelly steal oh, bird's egging. eggs in order to preserve, paint, or display them. Okay, not but the egging I had in mind. <laughs> was that just a year earlier, another boy had tried to climb the exact same tree and had managed to touch one of the exposed wires that still had a current running through it. The boy died a slow, painful death over the course of two weeks, and Ray was about to make exactly the same near-fatal mistake. A horrifying amount of electrical current ran through his young body, so much so that his eyes, lips, nose, and ears were all hideously malformed or burned away completely. One of his arms was frazzled and rendered useless by the subsequent fall, while one of his hands was blown clean off of his wrist by the force of the electrical wow. power. He went through an ungodly amount of pain and suffering, but with the hard work of some top local doctors, little Ray Robinson miraculously survived. As you can imagine, Ray's life became extremely difficult after the accident, and not just because of his injuries. Many of the larger Victorian-era homes in rural Pennsylvania, including the one Ray grew up in, really can be something to behold. The extravagant architecture includes high ceilings, grand bay windows, and often the privacy of personal ensuite bathroom fixtures. In some cases, the level of domestic self-sufficiency meant that a person could remain in one isolated corner of a house for days, perhaps even weeks on end, as just as much as it could be used to provide a sense of comfortable solitude. Such features made for rather horrible gilded cages for people like Ray, and this is how his family kept his monstrous form hidden away from the terrified public. That's messed up. By all accounts, no, Ray I was kept to. isolated You'll and understand. shunned even by his own family. But he wasn't entirely mistreated during his upbringing. He was amply fed, and his love of baseball was indulged by parents that provided him with both baseball cards and a wireless radio with which he could listen to games. His parents also understood that he needed to keep busy, and also that they needed to teach him to function in society. They provided him with the means to learn braille, and even taught him how to fashion wallets and doormats out of used rubber tires. When he came of age... His family revealed a renovated apartment they'd made for him, set into the family garage. It was much closer to them, both physically and emotionally, and it meant the world to a young man who'd been so terribly misunderstood for most of his young life. Only as he grew, a yearning to roam free burned in him. So in a small act of rebellion, Ray slipped out of the house in the dead of night and walked the highway near the family home. It became something of a habit, he enjoyed the feeling of the tarmac underfoot, the feeling of the breeze on his skin. After a while, he went from walking the highways once or twice a week to almost every night, always alone and always at night. And this is where the real-life Ray Robinson became a walking, talking urban legend. Most nights on the rare occasion that a car did come along, Ray was so frightened by the sound of the oncoming engine that He'd scamper off the road and hide among the foliage. But after a while, we found he was unafraid of the roaring vehicles. If he stuck to the side of the road, they didn't seem to bother him. So he made the decision to stop hiding. One day, Ray was walking along the highway when once again he heard the sound of an oncoming car. 
Yet unlike so many times before, when the vehicle had just rolled on by, having not caught him in its headlights, Ray heard the screech of tires on the road behind him. A man cried out into the night, revving his engine in a way that sounded a lot like reversing. Ray spooked, bolted off the road and into the cover of some trees. Ray swore off his nightly walks for a while, but the damage was done, and in nearby Elwood City, rumors began to spread of a man with no face. The first sighting didn't cause too much of a stir. People just thought the storyteller was tired, crazy, or drunk. But after a few months, a second sighting of an obviously restless Ray Robinson caused something of a frenzy among the local townsfolk. People would scour the length of Route 351 once the sun had set, desperate to confirm the rumors of Charlie No-Face for themselves. But one by one, the people of Elwood found the rumors were all true. As one might expect, Ray's rather unusual appearance was the subject of equal parts fascination and revulsion. But for the most part, those that encountered him were not without compassion. People began to offer him cigarettes or beer, two amenities he'd never had the fortune or misfortune to have partaken in. And like many of us, he found that he enjoyed them. It also seems that he was partial to having his picture taken, as there are many confirmed photographs of Ray with smiling locals, arms around his shoulders as if he were a beloved celebrity. Again, rumors spread that Charlie No-Face liked beers and smokes, and the town folks would bring tributes to Ray on a nearly nightly basis. This only further incentivized his nightly rambles down Route 351, but not everyone who sought him out had good intentions. According to some Elwood residents, Ray was attacked and beaten up on more than one occasion. One person even tells the story of how one particular cruel character filled a bottle of beer up with his own urine, chilled it, and then gave it to the blind wanderer on one of his moonlight jaunts. That's fucked up. Some would stop him, offer to give him a ride, then simply drive in the middle of nowhere and kick him out of the car. That's shocking, but not surprising as anyone even remotely familiar with humanity might be quick to remind you. That's something I'm worried Elwood do. resident tells the story of driving down Wallace Run Road late at night with his friends. I bet you they know the urine, a case of beer, the urine and the beer, and some he probably said, and they're usually that very little pumpkin pie haircut. Our narrator had yet to have the pleasure, and when Ray Robinson finally presented himself in the flesh, right in the seat next to him, the man said he was frozen in terror. Everything they said about him was true, and his face really was green. But as it turns out, there's a rather grim reasoning behind this discoloration, as Ray's nose was basically an open wound for his entire adult life. Yeah. And as a result, he yeah, often suffered from of, some quite dangerous it. infections, thus turning his face a slightly verdant hue. People need to understand, the resident was quoted as saying, this was a human being. A real person, and someone who endured one of the most tragic lives I've ever encountered. Underneath it all was this beautiful, kind man. Somewhere, there exists a photograph of Ray Robinson posing with a woman. It's clear that she's happy, that she's unafraid of him, and the way she holds him speaks to the warmth she has for a man she may never, ever have met before. All based on a well-deserved reputation of being a kind and gentle spirit, who wouldn't let a life-changing accident keep him down. 
There also exists an interview with a man whose brother was killed in action during the Vietnam War. By his own admission, his fascination with Charlie No-Face was a rather eccentric one, but he also credits Ray Robinson with helping through the darkest period of grief he'd suffered so far. Ray wasn't just an urban legend. He was a real flesh and blood man. Oh man, this dude looks scary. Out. Yeah, you seen it? I got it right here. In an assisted living facility when he passed away. His grave is we'll in the Grandview Cemetery, located at 139 story. Norwood Drive in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. And coincidentally, it's just a few plots away from the little boy electrocuted in the exact same manner, just a year before his own accident. Occasionally, someone comes along to put fresh flowers down on Ray's grave. It's not clear whether this is one person or many, but the message is clear. Ray's legacy lives on, be it in the terrifying tales of the man with no face, or in the love that those who came to know him show. So here's to Ray Robinson, the urban legend who turned out to be very, very real, and who deserves to rest in the deepest and most heavenly peace. All right. So that does that. Let's pull up the... I'll go ahead and remove that out of here. Let's pull up that picture real quick. I got yeah. this. Is, you got this it? Is nuts. Yeah, I got it. Let me see what you got. Well, I'm going to pull up the uh, the one I found on... Open link does it look like Sammy Sosa? No, he's wearing like an army jacket in this one. It's a colored photo. What? I got all black and white ones. Let me see. Yeah, let me... uh. Pull this one up for you here. Does he look friendly? No. <laughs> oh, man. He looks that's, like Homer Simpson a little bit, but yeah. That's it's disturbing. It is, because... That sucks, man. That guy had, must have had a rough life, man. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys, would you, if you had an accident like that, would you want to live the life he lived or be killed by it? I'd want to be killed by it. No, because look at it like this, man. You say that, but he can at least have thoughts and he can still enjoy things. Like, he enjoyed the beer and cigarettes, so, I mean, that's something. That's true. I guess he took uh, enjoyment from things that... And look at it like this. He, did, he couldn't see himself. He had no eyes, so he didn't know how ugly he was. This is true. But uh, so Corey, we, at the beginning of this, we uh, we both said what our favorite urban legend is, or at least one that we really liked. So, what is one that you always heard growing up that that you were a fan of? I have two that came to mind. I, I guess these would qualify as urban legends. Uh, but the first one's Mothman. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I just Marvel or DC variants. Jesus, <laughs> not, not that. Um, I've just always been intrigued by that whole story. And then uh, my other one is—I guess it's—it's it's become an urban legend, kind of. It's more like a ghost story, but the uh, Resurrection Mary in Chicago, um, where like the people drive down a certain road, and like there'll be. Like down the road from this cemetery, there'll be this woman in white walking down the highway, and like you can, like they say, you could give her a ride, and basically you drive her, to have you drive her to the cemetery. And uh, what? 
That's that sounds incredible. That's great, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But there's a whole story backstory about who it probably was, and then there's actually a cool uh, a video. Um, I'm trying to think how the story was. Someone drove her down, um, or was driving down past that cemetery one night, and they saw this, like a girl. It looked like the girl was locked in the cemetery because there's these big iron gates at that cemetery. So the dude, dude or woman, whoever saw her, called the police and said there was someone locked in the cemetery. So they go out there and. Um, they couldn't find anyone in the cemetery, but the craziest thing was like the iron bars on the gate, there were like burned in fingerprints and they were kind of deformed. And apparently, wow. apparently those, they like cut them out for a while and ended up putting them back in. So I, I think they're still there. You can still see like the fingerprints burned into the iron bars. I want to go to the spot yeah, so bad. <laughs> so. Crazy. Somebody's no. still firing fireworks outside. Let's see if I, they see if I can find a picture of that. Those iron bars. Hold on, I'll see. Yo, but do y'all remember that urban legend? Uh, it's, this is actually true. But as a kid, I heard this story about the two guys that took a picture for they were struck by lightning, and they captured him right seconds before, and their hairs all standing up, all crazy. And oh. one of the, one of them was killed. But it's a picture of seconds before they got struck by lightning. Let me pull that up because you can actually see the real photo, and it was a real thing. They were out camping, goofing around with a Polaroid, and it was a storm coming in. And they, I, I love the urban legend stuff, man. I always have. Yeah, there's, there's those bars. You can see the like wow, fingerprints burned into them. That's wicked. Whoa, what the fuck? Oh, let me, yeah, oh yeah, I got it blown up here. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So yeah, I, I've always wanted to go check. Can that you uh, out, can you right click on that, Corey, and do it like open it in a new tab? Yeah, let me see see. there. Like open picture a new tab. Uh, tab, I think's the option. Oh, there it is. Okay. Uh, you'll probably just share that tab. There, there, oh, yeah, there it is. Oh yeah, that's better. Oh yeah, dude, that's incredible. I want those bars. I want to go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There's a collection item. Yeah, for hidden gems. <laughs> uh, all right, so, 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 so this. See that? It, yeah. So these two dudes got struck by lightning. Yeah, they were struck by lightning. And this, I think the younger one died. I can't remember. Or it might have been him. But yeah, basically, this is right before they got struck by lightning. So it's about wow. to come down on them. Like a three pronged bolt or something like that, it's called. But yeah. Damn. Sucks. <laughs> All right, there, was so, a, uh, there was a golfer killed today. Was it lightning or something I, like that? Let me I see. Think I, don't know. I didn't hear that. <laughs> I don't know. It might be on my Yahoo News feed. Like in Georgia, maybe? Is it Arnold Palmer? No, it says golf pro. Oh, they were shot. Never mind. Anytime <laughs> oh, I hear like golfer dead, I'm thinking like. Uh, Lightning or something, but never mind. <laughs> every no. time I every time I hear that, I'm like, some, she's fucking some golf pro. <laughs> uh, Elmo Platch. Yeah. Oh man. 
That's all I need to That's the best part. <laughs> oh, all right. Uh, I guess we'll uh, we'll wrap this one up. Uh, you guys excited for the uh, the stud list tomorrow? Got my list already. You got, you got your five honorable mentions. I do. Yeah. You got your pictures with. I are you putting pictures for the honorable mentions or just name dropping? I got pictures for everyone. I got pictures for everyone. So okay. yeah. But did you tell Jay to have pictures or? I did not. I'll send him a Twitter message. Uh, if not, we may just he may just have we may just have to have him Google it during and then. Yeah, that's, in. that's fine. <laughs> I'm gonna be sweating on this one. I'm already uh 0 for three or something like that. My list have not been people have not been too happy with me. I actually feel like I've got more legit ones than I thought I was going to, but whatever. You're the you're the king, man. <laughs> you're you're gonna win this one too. <laughs> I as well say it. I I have I have a, a few legit ones as well, actually, so as a matter of fact, let me let me pull up my list real quick here. I hope I fucking saved it and didn't get rid of it. Corey, do you agree with this? Now, Greg says that women can't be studs. They can't be on the stud list. Hey, Jamie. Jamie's on mine, so I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, <laughs> I, I guess I stand corrected then. Hey, what's up, Jamie? I don't know. It's... um. Well, I'm, I'm going based on off like our original like standards for the stud list. And it was always dudes, man. It was, it's nothing against women or no, like any sexist thing. It's just when we originally did it, it was always dudes. So I figured, you know, let's keep it. Are you saying, basis. are you saying half your studs are lesbians? Lawrence? <laughs> that's what he said <laughs> earlier. He's like, they're, they're lesbians. Cause that's all. It was all right, look, look, here's the deal. I will allow a woman as a stud on the list, but only if she has a mullet. If she doesn't have a oh, mullet, Jesus. she's immediately disqualified. Can it be Hillary Swank and Boys Don't Cry? Because I, I think that qualifies as... I'll let you have that one. <laughs> Especially since we can't decide whether or not she's hot. She's not mad to me. But no. <laughs> I don't think she was supposed to be. All right. Uh, there is. Let me ask you this: Is Elliot Page going to be understood? <laughs> hey, it's, it's, she's a contender. I, I did say earlier during the Dash and with Greg episode that I would allow Ellen DeGeneres as a stunt. Yeah, it works. Yo, highlight that last comment by Jamie. Uh definitely. Me too. Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres does pull some hot tail. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know who she married to, so I got to check that out. Portia, is it still Portia de Rossi? Is that her wife or whatever? Uh, man. I don't know. We I don't got know. money, I guess. I haven't kept up with that since she was banging Ann Hesh, so. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited, though. I want to see Jay's list. So, Jay, if you're out there, you know, can't wait to see you. Oh, yeah, it's going to be great. Never know. Maybe, maybe Hayden finally figured this thing out, and he'll join us too. Yeah, he's a little confused about it. <laughs> hey, I was right. Ah, uh, is it? I think I know who that is. I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure. Just, I'm pretty just sure. I do. You have the internet in front of you, man. I, I yeah. know. I know. I know. I know who it is. I just can't picture the. Picture pull her the up. Pull her picture up. 
right, here we go. See if that qualifies Ellen for the stud list, if you think it's hot enough. I mean, she already qualifies anyway because of how demanding she is from what I hear. Oh, yeah. Very true. <laughs> Katy Perry was hit on by her. Not I too can't long ago. blame her there. Yeah. All right. <laughs> She's got good taste. Here, you know what? I'll pull up a picture of them together. That way we can decide All on right. that one. You know what's funny is the picture I pulled up that it for the description of it it just says Z. <laughs> I don't know if that's a meaning anything there, but uh, that's a bad picture. That's a very right? bad picture, man. I can't tell who was the stud in that picture. <laughs> I think they both are. They're competing. Why? Right why did Ellen have a pumpkin pie haircut in that picture? <laughs> she, her motivation was Vince McMahon when he had his little boy haircut. Uh, only, only Doctor Octopus could pull that haircut off. My aunt Cheryl has the Vince McMahon little boy haircut right now because she shaved her head for my mom and it's just growing back. <laughs> you know, it's funny. My aunt Cheryl and my cousin John shaved their head in support of my mom. My mom never lost her hair. It's growing longer. <laughs> I said, that's all the jokes. Jokes on you. Oh man, that sucks. Can they get their money back now? No. Yeah, they'll get their hair back. It's all right. It's for a good cause. Uh, all right, fellas. Let's. Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and wrap this one up. It's getting kind of late here, and I know Lawrence is was falling asleep during the podcast, so I know he's ready for bed. <laughs> But, uh, All right, guys. Yeah, just I uh, want to thank thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, hit that like and subscribe button. And if you want to show us some support, uh, check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the SlackerCast. And Greg, what right. time is the show tomorrow? Uh, it is going to be probably around 9.45-ish. I say that because I'm always late. So around this. Stud list, top 10 studs. I'd like to hit it at 9.30, so I mean, we may start early. It just depends what time I get home. But my headset is dying, so uh, until next time. Slack off. <laughs>